what makes for a great, great Bible teacher is that you are, you're not simply going to the Bible to study for your next session, but first you're saying, God, change my heart, change me first, help me to be transformed so that out of the overflow of what you're doing in my life, other people in my, in my group will be touched. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. I'm Nancy Guthrie. Today, I'm in the offices of Lifeway in Nashville, down the road from where I live. And I get to talk today to Trevin Wax. So Trevin, thank you for giving me this time to talk to me and help us teach the Bible. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. So you've probably heard of Trevin. Maybe you have read his blog that's at the Gospel Coalition that's called Kingdom People. I really wanted to talk to him today because of his role as managing editor of The Gospel Project. Have you heard of that? It's a gospel-centered small group curriculum that Trevin has been hard at work on with really a team of people since 2010. But Trevin's also a contributor to numerous publications. In fact, you're writing a regular column for RNS. Is that right? right. Or do you just mm-hmm. kind of write a story every once in a while when you feel like it? How does it's, that work? It's more like that. It used to be a little more regular, but I'm I'm in, in some of the other things I'm writing and editing, I just haven't had time to be as consistent as I'd like to be. So, And usually those are articles on something going on in the news or in the culture, Something right? cultural, sometimes a popular theological essay, something I, I know whenever I post there, I'm it's an entirely different kind of audience yes. than what I'm going to get from the gospel. Who do you think about? as your audience when you sit down to write those articles? The the average secular, perhaps a little bit um, uh, not certainly not persuaded by Christianity, but people who are maybe interested in what an evangelical perspective would be like, perhaps somewhat um, um, uh, I don't want to say hostile, although some of the comments certainly go in that direction, but uh, at least not necessarily going to be as agreeable with our perspective as I would have, and, and to to try to at least winsomely and persuasively put put a point out there. And you've also written a number of books. Um, you wrote one for Crossway called Holy Subversion, Allegiance to Christ in an Age of Rivals. One I want to talk about today is a book you wrote called Gospel-Centered Teaching, Showing Christ in All the Scripture. You wrote that in 2013. That's a B&H book. That's right. Yeah. If you were sitting here across from me, you would never believe that Trevin Wax is old enough to have earned his Ph.D., um, well, I just I just got that. So it hasn't been that long. I know. But still, <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, um, he has his Ph.D. in theology at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. You have your Master's of Divinity from Southern Seminary in Louisville. But you've also spent time on the mission field. I mean, right. you've done a lot in your short little life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right? about to this month. Actually, I turned 35. Okay. So I recently memorized Psalm 90. Did you? Because this is the halfway. If, if you ah. get to the 70 mark, which, you know, the, the strong might make it to 80, 70 is the halfway mark if I'm going to get there. So I thought this would be a good time to memorize the psalm that tells me to to count the days. Mm-hmm. We might have to put you on the spot and make you quote that. <laughs> now, you also have recently started your own podcast. That's right. We did. Yeah. A great companion to this podcast, really, in many ways, because it's called The Word Matters. That's right. 
not the word, word matters, matters. right? Mm -hmm. Word matters. And you do that with who? Brandon Smith, one of my colleagues here at Lifeway. Um, the, the podcast is sponsored by the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and it's, it's basically a um, uh, short 15, 20-minute conversations, uh, sometimes just between us, sometimes with leading scholars or theologians or teachers, um, about controversial passages in the Bible. What, what are some of the ones that make you scratch your head when you, when you yeah. read them? We all need that. Yeah, and there's plenty of them, so I don't there think we're going to run out they? anytime soon. <laughs> All right. Well, let's dive in. Let's talk first about the Gospel Project. Sure. Uh, some people will be very familiar with it. Maybe some people will have seen the logo, but not really get what it is. So what is the Gospel Project? The best way to describe it would be to say that it is a, it's a gospel-centered uh, small group curriculum uh, that's used in Sunday school classes, small groups, home groups, community groups, whatever ki- whatever kinds of groups people meet in. Um, and it's used for all ages. So there is a, a um, there's several versions for kids based on age. Uh, then there is a student version that's uh, for middle school and high school students, and then a, a an adult version for groups from college all the way to senior citizens. So um, it's it's the kind of curriculum that is available for all ages, kinds of groups in the church. And it, the, the, um, the way that the curriculum unfolds is you walk through the major stories of the Bible in a, in a three-year cycle. Um, half of that three years, 18 months or so, is Old Testament. Then 18 months is New Testament. And along the way, the entire point of the Gospel Project is to show how all of these stories connect, how they're, how they're all telling one big story. Um, and ultimately how all of these stories are pointing us to Jesus and the salvation we find in him. So um, showing Christ in all the scripture, the subtitle for my, my book, Gospel Center Teaching, is a, is a good um, description of what we're trying to do with the, the Gospel Project, to connect the dots for people. Um, we, you know, we, we, we've heard from people consistently over the years who are either concerned about biblical illiteracy, just people not knowing the Bible, even people who have been in our churches, or are concerned that people know the Bible, but it's all disjointed and they don't really understand how some of the Bible stories they learned as children, how they really connect to the the bigger picture, the big story of the Bible. And so the Gospel Project, week after week after week, helps train and not only inform people on how the Bible fits together, but train people to read the Bible in a way that they're looking for how this fits in the big picture, how they see Jesus. So it's, it's and one way it's telling people how the Bible points to Jesus, but on another level, it's actually training people to read the Bible rightly, not just as a, uh, a treasure trove of moral application, uh, although there's plenty of moral application in the Bible, of course, or not just a, a, as um, examples that we might follow, but, but ultimately how does this, what does the Bible teach us about God and in light of what God has done for us, what does the Bible call us to do? So where did this arise from, Trevin? I mean, was this something in your heart you came to Lifeway with? Is this someone, something some people in Lifeway came to you and said, will you do this? Well, I'd always been appreciative of Lifeway's curriculum. I had um, I had taught some of the other curriculum options that Lifeway had had over the years. I had led um, – I actually was working over the education ministry in a in – a, church uh, for several years in which I was 
helping train our leaders as to, to what they would do. But in my own particular small group in within that church, I, I, I had not found a curriculum. Uh, here and there I would use different things that I found, but I had never found something that actually did this sort of – Take this gospel-centered approach and also do the 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 big story of the Bible and put everything in context the way I wanted to. And part of this is just me as a preacher and teacher. You know, I I really wanted I really wanted that for for my group. And so I was already teaching along these ways and leading my own group along these ways, and uh, was writing and and um, encouraging people in in that direction with my online writing and some uh, you know the first. Uh, book that I'd written. And it was around that time that um, Ed Stetzer, who was uh, at Lifeway at the time, uh, contacted me and said, um, Lifeway wants to do a curriculum. We've, we've been besieged with requests for a curriculum that is um, very theologically robust, very Christ-focused, and also very mission-driven. And those those that rang your bell, words, I, bet. <laughs> I, mean, I thought, oh, this is great because I've always appreciated uh, Lifeway's overall just solidness theologically in the curriculum that is out there. But I, I was looking forward for – I was looking for something that would put all those things together in a unique way. And so at first I wasn't interested and we, we continued to talk and um, then I, I love starting stuff. And so the idea of coming here just blank slate can actually start this and put this together and gather around advisors and then what put together project. writers. Oh, it, wow. it, it has been, it, it has been huge. And there have been many sleepless nights throughout that process, but um, the Lord has blessed it. We, we um, launched in 2012 in the fall with um, we, our initial expectations had been that we would have, you know, thirty, forty thousand people maybe use it, which would have been better than anything we had started. When you say at people, thirty four thousand. You mean churches? Participants. 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 Okay. Right. right. Individuals. And individuals. Right. And and I mean that would have been bigger than anything that Lifeway had, had okay. published in quite a while. So, okay. Um, and we launched with almost five hundred thousand, and so that was Kevin. That's huge. That sh- that shocked us. And then when we went into the second cycle of the gospel project last fall, fall of 2015, that's when we crossed the million mark. So we had doubled in our first So our does first that cycle. mean so, the curriculum is being used quite a bit beyond the Southern Baptist churches that are at the heart of Lifeway's ministries? It, Like all of our curriculum lines, there are um, – we, we, we have a doctrinal guideline. The Baptist Faith and Message is our, is our guideline that we write to. But we, we have plenty of um, like-minded churches and denominations and groups that, that use our curriculum. And the Gospel Project is, um, has certainly been adopted and is being used in a lot of different settings. I mean, I know of Lutheran churches, Anglican churches, Wesleyan churches. On the kids' version of the Gospel Project, I mean, you have anything from a non-denominational church like Moody Church in Chicago to Redeemer Presbyterian, um, Tim Keller's church to um, Twelve Stone, which is the, one of the largest Wesleyan churches in the country. Um, uh, church, plenty of churches outside of the SBC have have uh, decided this would be uh, a curriculum that that works for them as well. So it's been encouraging to see that that response, and we we have tried to 
uh, focus on the essentials. And in some of those areas where we do have differences of opinion and maybe with our Anglican brothers and sisters, they just know when we get to those that the, you know. Are there very many of those? Or like, give me an example of a couple bumps in the road. Well, I mean, we're going we're, we're gonna to take the, uh, when we speak about baptism, it'll be, we'll, we'll take the believer's baptism position. Uh, not that the curriculum is going to, um, um, I guess, intentionally try to to um, make a pointed case against brothers and sisters who disagree on this issue. But we we are confessional. I think that's one of the 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 things that that helps us as an as an organization stand out is that we do have this this confession of faith that we're going to um, to abide by. And so. Um, so it's been, it's been even, even some of those questions have been interesting in navigating when we talk with other denominations and we try to lay out exactly what we're doing, help ever help people understand. And then there are contentious issues that Southern Baptists don't agree about that we, <laughs> that we, that we try, that we basically, oh, I doubt that. Oh yeah. If you, <laughs> it's always said if there, if you've got two Baptists in a room, you've got five opinions, right? <laughs> um, but, and, and in those, we try to, uh, to stay as close to the biblical text as we can. And in contentious issues, simply say, you know, here's here's what the Bible says. Here are different Some perspectives. Ways it's understood. Yeah, different mm-hmm. perspectives on mm-hmm. this passage or on this theological mm-hmm. topic, um, and and present them, and then not take a position. You know, a, a view of a particular view of the end times, for example. Yeah. We we're not gonna. You don't have to go there. No, all. we're not. We're, when we when we we present what Scripture says, we present different views that people in the church believe, and then we. We really want pastors and group leaders. We don't. I don't feel like it's the job of a curriculum to tell the group leader exactly what to think. Think the curriculum is a tool, and I want pastors and leaders and small group leaders to be able to to take their own church, their own church's position, their own pastoral leadership's position on on contentious issues, and be able to flesh that out and and to have the curriculum working with them rather than working against them. So. so- gospel centered. I mean, in some ways, I think some people, some people don't understand it. Some people maybe think they understand it. Maybe some people are even getting tired of it, maybe because it gets overused. Help us understand how your approach, maybe you can pick a couple of passages, maybe Old Testament, New Testament. Tell us how your approach in this curriculum would be different than some other kind of curriculum because this is gospel. Well, one of the one of the examples that I love um, to tell the most about this involves my my son. He was asking me this similar question, not what is gospel-centered, but what makes the Gospel Project as a curriculum different from other kids' And how old is your son? He is about to turn 12. Okay. So it's a couple of years ago he asked me this. He was 10, I think, at the time. And we have we also have a, um, a daughter who's about to turn 8, Julia, and then we have a a three-year-old son too. And so they're in a church, our church uses the gospel project. And, um, and so they, and they had already been in the gospel project for several years by this time, had been going through the main stories of the Bible, seeing how they point to Christ and and whatnot. Um, And I, when he asked me that question, I wasn't sure how to explain philosophically what is the difference between us and another curriculum. And so I just decided, well, it'd be better to just use an example. So on, on the, the passage in Daniel chapter one, where Daniel um, and his friends are enticed to eat the king's food and um, decide decide that they won't, that it would have defiled them. And um, and instead they decided that they would have this different diet with vegetables and things like that. And 
Um, and if you, you know the story, after several weeks, after several uh, uh, certain time passes, um, this experiment that has gone on, Daniel and his men actually look healthier and better than than if they had uh, eaten of the king's meat. And so it sort of stuns people that that God's way, obedience to God, faithfulness is good here. And so um, I asked our son, I said, so you remember the story about Daniel not wanting to eat the, the, the king's food and his friends? And he, he remembered the story. Um, and I, I asked him, I said, so uh, how would you – how would what would you say is the point of that story? Like, what would you? What is your takeaway? And I'm and I'm nervous. A ten year old, I mean, yeah, that's, that's right. an adult. That and that's a hard question. But go ahead. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, and I was nervous because I thought if he doesn't answer right, I will never tell this story. Right? <laughs> and he said something along the lines uh, of saying, "Well, the point, the thing we should glean from that story, we should learn from that, is that um, God is good, and that His ways are are good." that they're better than the world's ways and that um, God wants us to trust him and trust that his ways are good. And that if we obey him, that, that uh, he, he blesses us when we, when we trust in him and obey him. And so he said something along, along those lines. And he was, I, I was very, very encouraged because he went immediately to God in his character mm-hmm. and he, he, Brought in the obedience component after talking about how we trust mm-hmm. trust God, and so I was like, "Oh, good, okay, that's a good question, and I said, a good answer." And I said, "So here's so I said so here's how another curriculum that I know of um, tells that story. They tell the story, and then the the point of the story, the application is, you know, um, God wants you to eat healthy, and vegetables are healthier, and so you need to make sure you eat vegetables." And he and I was – we were in the van when I was doing this and I looked in my mirror and I saw he'd get this – he scrunched up his face like this this very – almost like this strain. It felt – that application felt strange to him and he, he thought for a minute and he said, well, he said, well, I, I guess you can get there. <laughs> like, like he was trying to like make sense of how that would be the thing you would pull out from this. Um, and I, what I was so, so encouraged about when I would say, when I, when comparing gospel project to other curriculum, I just, I I want, we want people to be formed in their Bible study to where they, they ask the right questions that the very first question you ask when you come to the Bible passage is not what is not what, not what does this Bible passage tell me about me or what does this Bible passage tell me I should do, the first question you should ask is, what does this passage tell me about God, who God is, what God is like? And and only then do you then begin to wrestle with the implications of that, and you begin to say, okay, what do I do in light of what God is and uh, who God is and what God has done? You know, And so um, I, I just, I worry that in so much of our teaching and leading, we we train people to come to the Bible with a me-centered approach what is this in it? What is this for me? What is this in it for me? To, and by the time that we kids get from sixth grade to high school, high school, then to college, then to, to they, they're conditioned to ask the wrong questions of the Bible first rather than the right questions. And so, so I, I, that's, that's what excites me is to think about a generation mm-hmm. of kids and the kids portion of the gospel project has been by far the most successful. Of is them. it? So like yes. what percentage of 
sales oh, are more the, the kids don't thing. know the exact percentage of sales but it's more than half uh-huh. is is kids mm-hmm. so students and adults are students obviously smaller because it's such a small it's six six years basically mm-hmm. is what you're covering six or seven years but um it definitely kids is more is the biggest component of it so give me a new testament passage that you teach in a gospel-centered way and compare it to how it might be in another well, curriculum one of the one of the examples i i love is um uh, this actually is a. This is how we how we would do this this how we do this passage. But it's also, um, of course, this approach is not unique to the Gospel Project. And so I love when other people have had similar experiences of this. Um, you know the story of Jesus calming the wind and the waves mm-hmm. when he's in the boat and mm-hmm. uh, he's asleep and the disciples wake him up and then he does this. Um, and a lot of a lot of times we rush to spiritualize. Miracles. Not that we say that it didn't actually happen, but we immediately begin to ask about, you know, what are the what are the storms in our life? What are the what are the things we need Jesus to help us with and whatnot? I've and that, done, I've done that. Yeah, yeah, so have I. That's not a bad <laughs> question to ask, um, it, because G- Christ is with us in the dark periods of our life, right? Um, but the what, what I love sometimes we get so familiar with the Bible we do this too quickly. And we try to guard against this, especially in the New Testament. It's so easy to do it there. Um, But for this this story that Mark Galley tells, he said when he was a pastor in Sacramento, is that he he had this Laotian, this group of Laotian people who were coming to his church. And one week they came up and said they wanted to become members and they weren't even Christians yet. And um, he said, you know, let's let's take a gospel and let's go on Sunday afternoons and walk through this gospel, just this group of Laotians. So they did. And and because they weren't theologically sophisticated, because they weren't familiar with the Bible, Mark says, you know, the conversations they had were just so fascinating. I bet. You know, <laughs> and he gets to this story, Mark chapter four. And um, and he starts talking about the storms of our life. Right. How you apply this today. And he said the the room was just quiet. Nobody um, said anything. It was awkward silence. And one of them, Laotians, raised their hand and said, "Do you mean that with a word, Jesus actually stopped the wind and the waves?" And he thought, "Oh no, they're getting into miracles. I don't have my whole miracle presentation ready for this. So we're going to get sidetracked away from the real point of the story, right? The application of Jesus." And he said, "So he says, yes, of course we do believe that. But the the real point, the question is, what how what are the storms in your life that Jesus?" And he said, "Another stretch of awkward silence." Then finally, one of them said, "Wow, if Jesus could do that, he must be a very powerful man." And the entire room erupted into Laotian chatter. And Mark is standing up there and he says, aside from me, that room was filled with awe and wonder. Mm. And then it dawned on him, they got the point of that story better than he had. Because how did the disciples answer? The, what, what did the disciples say after that? Who is this man? All right. So here's, the, here's, here's what we try to do with the, the New Testament is help people have a fresh encounter with the majesty of God's word in such a way that that they are filled with awe and wonder. Because once you do that, once you see God big enough to where he can calm the wind and the waves with a word, you will trust him with the storms in your life, right? You'll, you'll get to that, that good word of application that you and I have both used in our teaching. But don't short circuit the moment of awe and wonder that the Bible is trying to, to get you to. Well, I think because few of us have been raised up and experienced a lot of teaching that actually the aim 
was to lead us to awe and wonder and to worship, not just in this story, but throughout we, our instincts are, we've got to get quickly to what am I supposed to do right? rather than who am I supposed to worship? Yeah. And you know, we've had people ask us, well, how, how is this curriculum going to tell people what to do differently than other curriculum? You know, like I, I've got a, I've got a group that's not very, that's apathetic evangelistically, or I've got a group that won't serve the rest of the church or mm. that's not involved. You know, people will ask this question. And, and I have honestly said, um, I don't think our curriculum is going to tell them to do anything differently than other curriculum lines will tell you to do. Because at the end of the day, most Christians know what they are supposed to do. It's just that the want to part of our heart is not in the right place. It's a want to problem, not a do I know what to do problem. Mm-hmm. So it's not simply telling people what to do over and over again that's going to lead them to change. If you look throughout Scripture, when people come into contact with the majesty of God, that's what changes them. I mean, you think of Moses at the burning bush. He comes into contact with God, and next the stuttering prophet is telling Pharaoh, let my people go. You know, you think of Isaiah. um, He has this vision of God in the temple in Isaiah 6, and then God doesn't even have to tell him what to do. God just asks the question, who will go for us? And and Isaiah is like, here, my Lord, send me. You think of the Samaritan woman coming into contact with Jesus and then immediately running off into town saying, come and see this man who's who's uh, told me everything that I've ever done. You know, you think of Peter cowering in the uh, uh, in, in locked rooms and denying Christ and with the other disciples afraid for his life after Jesus is crucified, after encountering the risen Christ. Within just weeks, he's proclaiming to thousands of people. So this idea of encountering God, it's not something you can manufacture. It's not something, unfortunately, that we as a curriculum can actually promise will happen. But the best thing we can do is to put ourselves in the posture for the Spirit of God to move us in this way. And that's all That's all that curriculum can do. It can be a tool to help get people in the right posture to have that encounter with God. That's what we're going for. Let's leave the curriculum behind a little bit, and let's talk about some of the things that you present in your book, Gospel-Centered Teaching, Showing Christ in All the Scriptures, although I know the book is very much related to the curriculum in some ways. But in that book, you talk about the desire that we have as teachers to go deeper. And of course, when we use that term, maybe we mean different things by it. Um, so what is the confusion about what it means to go deeper? And, and what is it really? And how do we get there? That's a great question. And I mean, that this is one that will leave leaders with scratching their heads all the time. It, if anyone has ever complained to you about what going deeper about that we need to go deeper in our group. You, the, the first question has to be, okay, what do you mean by that? Because some people, by that they mean, I need more information. Tell me something I didn't know. And I will have a satisfactory small group or Bible study experience if I walk out of here knowing something that I did not know before. Information. That's what people are looking for. And I just got to say, I sympathize with this because we do have a biblical illiteracy problem in... Uh, in our country, in our churches. So we should give people information. We shouldn't apologize for that. We we certainly give a lot of it in the Gospel Project. And for teachers, that means we've got to do some homework. That's right. You've got to study. I mean, it's a the Bible's not an easy book. And I don't, I, I sometimes feel like we, in trying to get people to come to the Bible, to, to enjoy Bible study or to ease into it, we want to make it easier than it is. But when you do that, you actually, you actually, 
undercut the sense of satisfaction that people have when they really grow in Bible knowledge. And discover. And discover. This is a hard book, but I'm getting some of this now. Yeah. You know? So um, so information, that's what some people mean by depth. The problem with that is that if that's all we mean, then what we can unintentionally create are groups of people who know a lot about God's Word, but don't necessarily know God better. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who can win a game of Bible trivia, but they don't look too much like Jesus. Mm-hmm. So we've got to go deeper than the demons. You know, James says that the demons have got their systematic theology right on that there is one God, but they're still devils. So information can't be the answer. The other, an, another way that people define depth, though, is um, application. Just you need to just tell me what I need to do. So some people aren't so concerned about tell me something I don't know, but they want to walk out with an action plan for the week. And of course, I sympathize with that too. I mean, James talks about not being just hearers of the word, but doers as well. That we, we, this is a vital part of what it means, what it should mean to go deeper is to have application in this way. Um, but the problem with that though is that if, if all of your attempts in Bible study are finding a to do list, then what you will inevitably wind up doing is you'll come to the Bible and you'll just skim the surface and you'll look for practical tidbits for your daily life. You won't really dig into truths about the Trinity, for example, because that doesn't seem immensely practical. You're, you'll, you'll, you'll pull out proverbial type things throughout all of the Bible, not just the Proverbs, and, that, and, and you'll find little moral lessons that help you along. Um, and that's, that tends to become a sort of a self-centered, self-help way of coming to the Bible. So what... When when people will talk to me about depth, what I want to say is let's let's go deeper than those two definitions of deep and actually look at something that would include both of those, information and application. And that's where I think gospel centrality really helps because when it comes to information, gospel centrality gives you the bigger picture of the Bible so that you see how this all fits together. And it's not just disconnected information, but it, it points us to Jesus. It's moving us toward awe and wonder, worship. When you have application, I think you... You want to connect that to the fact that what it's not simply what we do, but it's in light of what God has done. You're connecting – when we do tell people what to do, it's connected back to the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So gospel centrality is not against information, and it's not against application, but it's a bigger umbrella that encompasses both of those things and connects them to something bigger. You mentioned as a part of that going deeper – setting it in context of the whole of the Bible. And I think uh, lots of us as Bible teachers, we we want to do that. That That's a developed skill. That's a, that is a deeper level of knowledge. So for that Bible teacher out there that they've, they've heard someone do it and they're like, I want to do that mm-hmm. because when I hear it, I think that's how I want to teach. Right. I mean, uh, is it is it just are there just a few books we read to do that? I mean, how do we develop that instinct and that commitment? Yeah, that's a great word instinct, because I think it's it's more than simply a a to do a how to list. It's a it's an instinct that's developed. um, I, I would I would. How did it develop in you? Well, I, I had I, I grew up under a, a preacher who did this rather well. Did you? Who, okay. Who, who would connect um, Bible passages back to the bigger, bigger picture? And by that we mean connected to 
creation, fall, fall redemption, redemption, consummation, right, and, and where it fits in in that part of right and how Bible and story. That's right because you you almost want to think um, the one one illustration I've heard that I like to think if you think about the Bible as telling the story of our world. And it's as if we're in a train from creation to new creation and we're going and consider each Bible story as a stop on the way, right? We're stopping and we're in God for whatever reason and his good purposes has given us this story to help develop our, to help us on mission now. Um, So it's still relevant for today. All of the stories of the Bible have some relevance, at least at some level. So um, if you think about a train stop though, um, you... A train stop is a stop on a way to something else. So one of the best ways to think about Bible study is if you're if you're if you're in an Old Testament passage, for example, you're in a New Testament story, or wherever you might be, consider that one story, but then remind people where the train started mm-hmm. and where how we got to this point of the story, and then where the story is going, how this points forward. And you might be pointing forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. You might be pointing backward to the cross of Jesus Christ, depending on where you are in the Bible. But at some level, you're helping people get oriented to where they don't simply see the Bible as a collection of Aesop's fables kinds of stories that are just standalone. They're not standalone. They're they're telling the story of redemption. Um, there are some books and some resources that help you do this. There Which are, ones have been especially helpful to you that you recommend to people when they say, I didn't grow up this way. I don't have these instincts. I, I love Bible overview books. And so you want to start easy. There's a couple of Bible story books for kids that are fantastic. We we have one that's associated with the Gospel Project called the Interactive, uh, the Big the big Picture Interactive Storybook Bible, which is a um, a terrific um, a journey through the major stories of the Bible, showing how they all point to Christ. Uh, Crossway has one called the Big Picture Story Bible, which I absolutely have enjoyed with my kids David over the years. Mm-hmm. David, he did a terrific job yeah. on that. Um, the Jesus Storybook Bible, of course, by Sally Lloyd Jones, is already on its way. I think to be being considered a classic. Um, I have actually given out David Helm's Bible and Sally Lloyd Jones's. Um, Jesus Storybook Bible to parents with kids because I wanted the parents to read to read the I, I wanted the kids to hear it too but it's because it's just such a good formative exercise of thinking in the well the I know picture. a seminary professor who has his seminarians read it yeah to grow in their understanding of that's that. right so that's right yeah. so the, those are good and then there's some there's some other resources that I I think have have been really helpful too I I um, a little more theological, maybe a little more complicated for some just um, uh, ordinary Christians that haven't been to seminary. Graham Goldsworthy stuff is, of course, uh, really good according spe- to plan uh-huh. would be the one I would would say. Um, it's a little textbookish, but uh, there's also a book by Vaughn Roberts called God's Big Picture, which is um, uh, a really good overview to show how this all uh, fits together. And then there are the chronological Bible reading plans. So if you, I, I know you've had George Guthrie on your podcast before. George Guthrie did read the Bible for life, which helps you understand how to read the Bible and gives you this picture of the big story. And then he has a chronological reading Bible where you can walk, walk through the Bible in, in story form with all of the Bible there, but it's telling you in, in, in a, in a form that, um, really emphasizes that storyline aspect. So these are just some simple ways I think to get oriented and to begin developing that instinct. You might pick one a year. 
that you that you read. I encourage people, don't try to read all those at once. Maybe one a year you read one of these overview, Bible overview books and and um, gradually deepen that sort of instinct. Listen to preachers who, who are known for doing this well and things like that. So you're talking about figuring out how the passage fits into the big story of the Bible and the big story of Scripture. And that's really the first of three questions that you say we should ask ourselves every time we're preparing to teach. So that first one, you know, how does it fit into the big story of Scripture? What are the other two? Yeah, the other, the second one we would say is what is distinctively Christian about my message? Mm. Um, And and you mean that in, 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 I I actually will, will pull that out in three, three, I have three sub questions under that, depending on whether you're doing Old Testament or New Testament or a really applicational one, right? So Old Testament, I would say, is there anything in my lesson, my session, or whatever I'm teaching, my sermon, is there anything here that a faithful Jew could not affirm? Because if a faithful Jew who believes in Yahweh but not in Jesus the Messiah would affirm with my take on, for example, the, the story of David and Goliath and would find nothing to quibble with, then I'm teaching the Old Testament not really as a Christian, right? That I'm, I'm, I'm so focused on one passage, one text. And so how would teaching David and Goliath be different for a, a Jewish person and a Christian? How, what would the difference be in that story that would make it uniquely Christian? Well, we, wouldn't, we don't see, obviously, Jews and Christians would agree that David is something, is, is certainly his, speaks of the coming Messiah, where we would disagree, obviously, is that we, we as Christians actually see Jesus as coming from the line of David, that David in some ways is the prototypical king. He's the, the king that is the prototype for what kings are to be before you get to Jesus, and God makes a special covenant with him. So when you have David there um, battling Goliath on the part of the Philistines, um, you have a king who's already been anointed but is not yet recognized as the king, who's taking on the the serpent the evil one you know and he's taking them on in, on behalf of his people and then once he slays the giant the philistines then uh, um run after I, I mean the the israelites run after and pursue the philistines to in in battle um that story is a true historical story and it's not an allegory we shouldn't allegorize it and say oh this is really just a picture of jesus and um, Satan. It's to to do that would be to make too many too many jumps. But certainly, you can see a parallel, an analogy of some sort between this king that no one would expect anything of, taking out the the bad guy on behalf of his people uh, for the glory of God, and and then this pursuit taking place. We do believe Jesus, this king who came from humble circumstances that we would not expect much of, has um, taken on uh, the evil one through his death, through his ministry, his life, death, and resurrection. And now we pursue the nations, but not in order to battle them, but with the message of the gospel. So there's even mission involved there. So what's the less than Christian way? The less than Christian way, I would say, is you either tell the story just as an example of David's courage— and so you have cu- tried to have you courage, try to have like, courage David. like David. All right. I, and there certainly there is application there that 
God wants us to raise up people who are courageous like David. So I'm not I'm not against finding good character traits in the Bible. and We just don't want to limit it to that. That's right, because Paul even says in 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. chapter 10 that these examples are given to us as a, as a way of, um, of teaching us, of helping us see by example both good and bad what to be and what not to be. Um, but it would, it would also, I, and honestly, I, I, the one that tires me the most, and I know so many good, good pastors who take this approach, it, but the facing down your giants in your life kind of a, an approach is, is not, is not the point of that passage. So, um, and that could be taught in a Jewish situation, right? It could be taught. By Oprah, I mean, there's yeah. nothing really. There's nothing necessarily Christian yeah. about that that line of interpretation. Even if it's, when Christ will help you. Well, that would get to our next question. That we okay, have to what's ask. our third question? <laughs> no, we're the, ask. The, no, the well, no, the oh, underneath the, the distinctively oh, yeah. Christian in the New Testament. Sometimes we preach Jesus, but only in the ways that He's our helper, not our Savior. Oh, so okay. the second thing we should ask is we're talking about distinctively Christian. Is there anything in my teaching of this passage that a Mormon could not affirm, for example, a Mormon who would believe well, I, in Jesus as a helper, but not necessarily as the son of God and, and as the savior the way we would? Yeah, I remember reading that question in your book. Yeah. And just thinking, maybe I don't know enough about what Mormons believe or don't believe mm-hmm. to, to ask that question exactly that way. But you are. But that helps me what you have just said, that he's not just a helper. That's right. But a savior. That's right. And you, we also have to remember the fact that um, a lot of preachers who really don't give clear gospel presentations will preach about Jesus. They'll mention Jesus from the pulpit, especially on television. You'll, you'll have preachers who will talk about Jesus, but they're presenting Jesus as something of a, of a coach, of an assistant, of a helper to someone's way of life. Um, not as the one who is your savior and Lord and who will radically transform and reorient your way of life. That's a different way of preaching Jesus. So it's not just enough to have Jesus in your message. I mean, the Gnostic Gospels, back from the 200s and 300s AD, they talked about Jesus, but it wasn't the Jesus of, of Scripture. So we have to be careful when we when we do preach about Jesus from the New Testament. Are we presenting him as merely an assistant, as a helper, or are we are we really giving him to our people as the savior and king? Or if we're teaching the gospels, are we using him just as an example to follow? True, and I and I some I I worry that some of the gospel centered camp, um, because they're almost allergic now to the idea of Jesus as example, um, have maybe undercut and actually minimized the imitation of Jesus that you see in the gospels and in the um, in in the New Testament letters. So. For a lot of of a lot of teachers, I want to bring them along and say, "Hey, make sure that you don't simply present Jesus in, as an example." But to some of the people that are so have just really jumped into the gospel center thing and have developed the the instinct, to those I would say, "Don't don't miss the follow me as I follow Christ, imitate me that Paul gives." And that that imitation, I mean, the gospels present Jesus as one to be imitated, and. Um, the Sermon on the Mount certainly does as well. So I, I think I, I think we've got to be careful to not overswing that pendulum. But um, if all we ever do is present Jesus as an example, then we're presenting an impossible standard. 
It's it's Jesus's example along with his saving death in our place. Because I can never live exactly like Jesus. That's right. I, I need him to, I need his perfect life. In your uh, place. In my place. But as he puts his spirit in you. Yes. You do become more like him. I want to be like him. That's right. Yeah. All right. So we said there were three questions every we ask ourselves every time we prepare. How does it fit into the big story of scripture? What's distinctly Christian about it? What's the third question? Uh, how does this truth li- equip God's people to live on mission? What do you mean by that? There is no gospel-centeredness apart from the mission of God. The, the, the gospel is a story about a missionary God, about a God who pursued uh, lost people, the the Savior who came to seek and save the lost. And so if our if all of this talk about putting the Bible together and making sure we focus on Jesus and that and all if all of this talk about the gospel simply becomes good talk about the gospel, it's not truly gospel centered. Because the point of all of this is that God would form us as his people to be salt and light in the world, to be on mission, to be great commission to, to be great commissioned Christians. So um you, so we've got to ask the question. This is where we get to the application. You've got to ask that question of every session you you lead. How does this passage, this truth, this teaching that I'm that I'm presenting from this passage? Wh- why did God give us this? He didn't simply give it to us for us to meditate on and reflect on and think about, nod our heads along. Uh, he gave it to us to equip us to be the kind of people He's called us to be, and He's called us to be a missionary people in the world that He's placed us. So the way you the the way that you make sure that you do get to some sense of application or mission is that you ask that final question, why? Why is this here? What's God wanting us to be and what's God wanting us to do in response to this big story of the Bible and this great message of salvation that we have in Jesus? You write in that book you tell a story about your group here, and I would have loved to have been in on some of the meetings, especially when you're trying to figure out how to teach some of these passages to children. Mm-hmm, sure. Because honestly, I think that is harder sometimes to be gospel-centered to children than to adults. You know, my husband has a kid's music company, and so I oftentimes write uh, short Bible studies for the children to be able to study the passage that the musical is based on. And of the, all the writing I do, I find that really hard. Like recently he had a musical coming out about sheep and shepherds. And so I was trying to write a Bible study for these kids about understanding Jesus <laughs> as a shepherd. Right. And, you know, to try to think, can kids get imagery, mm-hmm. you know, and those kind of things. So you write in gospel-centered teaching about your group contemplating how you'd present the story of Job to three- and four-year-olds. So what was your dilemma there? I think we can kind of anticipate some of what it would be. But what was your dilemma, and what did you come to? Well, it, the, the question of how, of what you teach preschoolers continues to come up again and again with different Bible stories, because there's certainly there are certain aspects of age level and appropriateness and things that you want to consider. The question with Job, I believe, if I recall writing about this, was should we present the the um, term and the concept of a mediator? Yes. To because, a three and four year old, to to a go between, you know, because right. that's what Job is asking. Because for. that is a big concept, it a is. challenging word. It is. And so, what'd you do? We decided to do it, 
and here and here's why not because we think for sure that three and four year olds are going to grasp that and be able to explain it all um, but simply because we know if if for example if a if a church is using the gospel project for nine years um, then their kids will go through the major stories of the Bible three times at three different age levels I'd rather go ahead and get that word out there and in their consciousness as a four-year-old. My daughter was four at the time when we were discussing this. And I remember thinking, you know, I want her to hear that. I, I don't, I know she's not going to totally get that. Just like she doesn't totally understand what the Lord's prayer means, even though we pray it every night. It's, it's like she's trying on mama's shoes. They don't fit right away, but I'm just praying and trusting that she's going to grow into those shoes. So you have approached teaching children the Bible with the very basic principle of don't shy away from Bible words. That's right. And we, and we try our very best to explain at a level that can be, that is, is good for, for the kids. Um, we do that the, the best we can. We do know that some, like, I, I don't think your success rate would be really strong by having too many four-year-olds be able to completely explain the idea of the mediator um, when they get home. But by the next time they go through that, three years later when they're seven, they will have heard it twice. Um, and so it, they, they, at a seven-year-old, they should be, they can give you a, a better glimpse of that. And then as a 10-year-old, they've got that. Before they even get to student ministry, they, they've got that down. The, the, other, the other hard thing, though, is, is we don't want to shy away from Bible words. We also have to be careful with certain Bible stories. There's some, I remember, remember getting a phone call from um, a, a children's leader who was just livid with us that we had presented the story of Ehud, the judge. Mm-hmm. It's a gross, ugly It's kind of a gross story. The left-handed judge, and for if any listeners aren't familiar with the story, it's terrific. It's in Judges. It's just – it's so vivid. As a kid, I remember it myself. Um, He he takes a sword and he – He's in the bathroom. He kills King Eglon in the bathroom Mm. and the king is so fat that the sword swallow – that the sword gets swallowed up in in the the king. Um, (laughs) And we had someone – we had a – I remember I took a phone call and – um, it was she was very very upset about that because there were a few people in the she was upset that we had used the word fat which is the Bible word because they had a, a few children's workers who were a little overweight and I remember thinking well th- th- this is the Bible, Bible word <laughs> you know and then the other and so what but they were also just didn't think it was appropriate and we weren't we were not that was not even a preschool session that was a um, like a fourth and fifth grade thing and I remember and. And I remember thinking, um, she told me that instead of that week, they had they had just done one about how God raises up leaders, and aren't we thankful God has leaders in our life? And I remember thinking, oh, those poor fourth and fifth graders, they would have loved, especially the boys, they would have <laughs> loved the story of Ehud, you know? Um, they missed this great story. But part of this comes back to, too, just how familiar we are with the Bible. I, some stories that really cause trouble with us, I remember one one children's leader contacted me just disturbed by the story of Achan, the fact that he and his family would be stoned and burned. Yeah, um, but there it is. It, it's in there, and and then God uses that later. When Hosea says the Valley of Achor, that this is this place. Hope. Yeah, it's going to become a door of hope. You know, there is this hope-filled, but, but, but the idea of Achan and his family dying because of Achan's mm. secret sin is, um, is, is hard, and they've said this just is not appropriate for... For kids, and I said, "Well, did you have a problem with Abraham and Isaac? Because I mean, the the idea of a father being told to sacrifice his son is even, in some ways, more disturbing." 
And they didn't have a problem with that, partly because they're just so we're so used to the story of Abraham and Isaac, perhaps, that it, it doesn't shock us the way it should. So one of the best things about all of this has been to hear from preschool and children's leaders who have become amazed afresh by the Bible stories they are teaching the kids, not just the kids, what they're learning. Oh, that's that's got to be so much fun. Yes. And them saying, I haven't ever seen this before. Or I haven't, I didn't know how this connected to the rest of the Bible. So we hear as as, as much feedback we get from children's leaders who are, feel like their eyes are being open to how the Bible fits together as the kids themselves, which is, which is great. That's awesome. Well, why don't we close this way, Trevin, if you would just speak directly to those who are listening, people who are week by week, they're working at their desk, they got the light on late into the night, preparing for a Sunday school class or a small group meeting, whatever. Um, Sometimes you get there, it seems like nobody appreciates all the work Mm -hmm. that you put into it. Sometimes you finish and you wonder if you got anything across or you go into it wondering if you've really got it. That's right. So just speak to us as Bible teachers, perhaps with a a word of instruction or encouragement. Well, the word of encouragement first. Um, I would would want to to tell everyone that is listening, if you are a Bible teacher uh, in your church— Small group leaders and Bible study teachers, you are the unsung heroes of the church. You know, the choir or praise team or someone gets up and does a big special and everyone applauds and claps and thinks about all the time they must have put into preparing that. People just don't realize just how much work you all put into Bible study. And it is work. It takes time. Like you said, with the light on at night sometimes or early morning on a Saturday. And I mean, you really do have to, uh, to work at it. And so... Uh, be encouraged because God sees that. God sees that and God knows the 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 work that you do and the hours that you put into this, even if no one else truly understands and truly appreciates. Um, but as a word of instruction, I would also say we can't expect people in our groups to go any deeper in their faith or relationship with Christ than we ourselves are willing to go. And so the best teachers— overflow with the passion they have for the Lord and for his word. It, the best leaders are not simply going through the motions. And if you're like me, you know what going through the motions feels like <laughs> because it is hard. Week to week, you're having to do this again and again and sometimes without much appreciation. It's so easy to 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 basically become just a mouthpiece for whatever the curriculum is leading you to say, whatever the Bible passage is that week. Um and to not really allow those truths to come into you first and to transform you first and to lead you first to worship and to overflow with love for God and for others before you wind up speaking, before you even open your mouth and open up God's word, um, that, is, that is ultimately um, what, what makes for a great, great Bible teacher is that you are – you're not simply going to the Bible to study for your next session, but first when you open up that that tool that is a curriculum or that you open up God's Word to study, that you're saying, God, change my heart. Change me first. Make me more like you. Help me to be transformed so that out of the overflow of what you're doing in my life, other people in my in my group will be touched. That That's the – be encouraged that your labor is not in vain as it's done to the glory of God, but also – uh, make sure that when you come to God's word, it's with that posture 
uh, of, of wanting to be transformed because that makes all the difference, all the difference in the world. Thanks so much, Trevin. Thank you. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts, including Holy Subversion, Allegiance to Christ in an Age of Rivals by our guest today, Trevin Wax. Learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org. <music>